podcast where we share the super cool backstories and side gigs of the research and insights pros that you trust. Today's guest is Jeff Scott, who's the director of user experience research at Charles Schwab, which has long been an innovator in financial services, helping to make investing something that everybody can participate in, even me. So I suspect you had something to do, Jeff, with uh, the smooth and easy experience that I have when I access my accounts. So I thank you for that. <laughs> now, uh, user experience was not Jeff's first career. Uh, he's been there for about seven years, but it follows his first career. It's actually at the United States Air Force uh, from which he is retired. And I know from our chat that he worked on some really, really cool, amazing projects related to things like human fitness and performance as it relates to ultra high speed travel and all sorts of cool stuff. So I can't wait to dig into that. Uh, so let's do it. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you, Matt. I'm flattered to be here. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> hey, man, it's all rock and roll. I'm glad to have you here. So, so let's talk. Uh, this is crazy. So you, your first career was in, uh, was in the military. Um, we'll get to that in a minute, but let's first talk about how you found your way to user experience research. I don't know if I can talk about that without talking about my time in the military, because it's one, okay. one big seamless story. So if you don't mind, I just jumped into that. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, out of high school, I enlisted in the Air Force, hoping to get some money to pay for college. Then I got sent to the Air Force Academy, and then I started my career in the career field called aerospace and operational physiology. Okay. Um, the first five years of my Air Force career were about human performance in manned flight, high speed, high G, high altitude, how the body reacts to those stressors of flight. And then at the five-year point, the Air Force sent me graduate school where they said, we need people not just focused on the human performance, like the physical part of manned flight, but what about the cognitive part of manned flight? Okay. With all the demands, with all the new technology, everything that we're putting inside a cockpit. I mean, you, you've looked inside like an airliner's cockpit, you've seen all the switches and gauges and dials and yeah, um, imagine a, a fighter with weapon systems as well as all the aviation instruments they need to fly. So the Air Force put me on this path and I got to study applied psychology and human factor psychology. Um, studied all the classical greats, uh, Wickens, Inslee, Gibson, uh, Sanders and McCormick texts, like these, these classic human factor psychology pieces and then used right. that in the later half of my career in the Air Force on the cognitive aspects of manned flight. Right. Got to work at the Air Force Flight Test Center. I uh, got to finish my career at the Pentagon working in the Human Systems Integration Office, reviewing requirements documents and making sure that the things that the Air Force was gonna buy from our defense contractors met the requirements for, met the Department of Defense requirements for human systems integration. And all of that training, all of that experience experience translated into UX research when I got out. Right. So it was time for me to get out of the Air Force. Um, I made a choice 
I applied for early retirement. So it was apply for promotion to the next rank, keep climbing the ladder in the Air Force, or apply for early retirement, get out, bring my kids home, get them some stability. And I, I chose that path. Okay. And as I'm looking for jobs, I'm looking at all the big defense contractors, the, the Lockheed, the Northrop's, thinking yeah. this is where people like me go. Kind of a natural and right? it, it's I thought it was a natural fit. And then one of my friends comes to me. He's like, Jeff, read this job description. And I'm like, okay. He's like, I found this on the HFES job board. This is totally for you. And I look at the header and it says Charles Schwab. I'm like, <laughs> no, my friend's name is Lee. I'm like, no, Lee, I, I don't think that's my fit. And goes, read the description. And as I read the description, um, the job I was hired to do was to be a human factors analyst was the name of the job title at the time okay. for the voice channel. So for IVR, so speech enabled systems, voice recognition, voice biometrics in the contact center for Charles Schwab. And I'm like, okay, I don't have any experience with IVR, but as I read what the job tasks were about Wizard of Oz testing, experimental design, usability, making things easier to use, um, all of these things that I've learned in graduate school and that I was doing in the Air Force, understanding how humans interact with technology, like yeah. I can do this. Um, so I applied for the job and long story short, after a couple rounds of interviews, got the job seven years ago at Charles Schwab. And, and now I've been in the IVR space. I've been in the contact center desktop space. Um, I'm now in the Schwab.com and mobile app space, right. managing researchers, working on all of that stuff. Ah, that's that's really cool. That's really cool. So, did you find also that so it's a job description, right? But then once you actually get into the job, sometimes you find that it's uh, it's totally different. But it, but it still it felt natural, like you had been prepared for this kind of work. Is that right? It really did. Uh, when I the work I got to do in aviation was really focused on aviation safety, I mean, human error prevention, um, instrument cross checks, um, what people, what pilots and air crew are looking at when, when things go wrong and when things go right, how their attention is being used. And I was able to apply all that in a contact center because there's a lot of things going on when you call the contact center for help and yeah. they're like, Hi, Matt. Thank you for calling Charles Schwab. How may I help you? They've got two monitors up. They've got a phone system. They've got notepads. They've got help content. Like they've got your account pulled up. Like there's all these things to, to manage. And they're looking at a bunch of different things while they're listening to you explain your problem while they're still trying to relate to you and, and have empathy for you and solve your problem. Switching phones and putting people on hold and taking call transfers. And it was just a lot of attention switching. So I found the work fairly similar, at least in terms of the mechanical attention resources and processing. I mean, it's, it's a contact center. You're not flying jets. It's 1G. So there's no other stressors on you. You're not getting shot right. at. Um, you're not in chem gear. So it was, a, it was a very nice switch for me to come to corporate because I had all that military experience where this, this is like, okay, I can handle this. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a really fascinating link. It's like something you wouldn't expect to be so related. And, and clearly here you see that 
uh, that they've kind of fit hand in, hand in glove. So let's talk a little bit about your military experience because we talked before and I know you've worked on some super cool stuff. Um, we'd love to get a sense for um, some of the work that, that you were involved in that was maybe the most rewarding or most interesting uh, person that you uh, that is a great question. Um, early in my career, when I got to play in altitude chambers and centrifuges, so an altitude chambers is a big metal box, and we suck all the air out of it and make you feel like you're at 30,000 feet. Okay. And you, you experience these physiological symptoms. Um, so I've, I've had to do some, I got to do some neat things like that, especially because the Air Force, I mean, we fly, you can Google, like, high altitude airdrops and high altitude low opening, like the career field I supported did that. So I, I never got to do it. I just wasn't privileged enough, but a lot of my colleagues got to jump, like I did fly really high altitude, open up the plane and, and watch people jump out as they manage oxygen systems. So my career field did that. Um, if you've seen any movies with a centrifuge, it's a machine that spins people around really fast yeah. to simulate a high G environment. That machine is terrible, absolutely terrible. And I've, I've experienced it and I don't want to do it again. But I got to go do that in jets and I got to help people practice and review their anti-G straining maneuver when they're up in the sky raging around like Top Gun. Yeah. So I got to do that. Um, one of the neatest things I got to do at the Air Force Flight Test Center was probably because I was fit and I was younger than my cohorts, but we were building a system that's now in flight, but at this time we were testing it. And I was just helping the principal investigator, but it was a, a ground collision avoidance detection system that will, if the jet is flying towards the ground, it will detect the ground and then take over the jet and fly it away from the ground in case the oh. pilot is incapacitated. So cool. <laughs> it was at the earliest stages, and it was still a NASA project before it became an Air Force project. So I got to participate with the NASA Dryden Research Center that was out at Edwards Air Force Base where I was. And we got to go out in the mountains of Nevada and just hike up to these highest peaks where the jets would fly their routes to, and we would validate that the altitude from this mountain where I'm standing right now actually matches the satellite data that we have on the altitude of the mountain. So we could make sure that the data set in the machine was correct so that the jet would automatically recover. And it was just so much fun traipsing around and taking GPS coordinates and being part of something that it saved lives. Yeah. Because we found that the data that we had didn't match a data set that we were using. So oh. that enabled the product team to go get better data so that jets wouldn't crash on the ground. And I've been following the news and it's saved lives. It's working in the field. Um, aviators across the country like, have this in some of their systems. And there are, there are families still with their spouses because of the technology. And I got to work at the really, really earliest phases. Some little peon doing the smallest of jobs, contributing to something so cool uh, was, was one of the highlights of my career. Yeah, what a what a great lesson in the importance of quality, accurate data. Wow, that's really something cool. Um, yeah. So, 
So I've worked with, uh, with a number of people who are ex-military uh, in the corporate world. Um, and uh, oftentimes, you know, they, they bring this wealth of experience that's a little bit different than someone who you know, just kind of went from college. Uh, curious to know if you took any lessons with you from your days in the military that you apply in your day-to-day -day at Charles Schwab. Every day, um, especially in my role now as, as the director of research, um, I think about my job in the same way I would have thought about my job had I, had I submitted for promotion to the next rank, I was on my way to squadron commander. And a squadron commander has two jobs, maintain good order and discipline, organize, train and equip. And that was, that was my career path for the longest time when I was wearing a blue uniform. And now that I'm here, I can apply that same philosophy, those same two jobs, maintain good order and discipline. That's engagement. That's morale. That's finding the right person with the right job and making sure that they've got job satisfaction and we're taking care of them and, and making them happy and satisfied to work at Schwab right. and organize, train, and equip. The other part about how do I staff correctly? How do I get the right software that I need to make sure we're doing the job right? Uh, make sure we've got the funding to support all the work that we're doing in research, building and maintaining usability labs. Schwab's got two full up, like in the room with one-way mirrored glass, we've got usability labs. So when we return to the office, we can make use of those spaces again. So that's the type of mindset that I've been able to carry with me. Um, from my days in uniform to my days not in uniform. Right. Yeah, that's great. Cool. Cool. Um, so let me switch gears here for a second. Um, being at a company like Charles Schwab, you know, I think of it really as an innovator in terms of moving into new platforms for people to manage their investments. And I've always sort of been at the forefront. Uh, so I assume that you're you're still there, uh, and maybe you have a perspective on. What uh, I guess what the what the future of user experience and user experience research looks like, or maybe some key trends that uh, that are important to think about. Cool. I thought you were going to ask me some questions about like what Schwab's innovating on, and I'm like, Matt, I can't talk about that. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad you redirected the question about trends in UX research. One of the things that I'm watching and I'm, I'm super curious in are trends around um, the phrase that I'm reading online is democratizing research. Right. How do we put research in the hands of people that, how do we enable and empower folks that aren't researchers to do their own? Uh, folks like Marty Kagan have been writing books for a long time about how to you know, go out and understand your user. And we've got a lot of people that want to be close to a client. They want to be close to their user so they can understand how to best design and best produce for that user. Right. But what makes me a little nervous is how, how are we gonna do that smartly and responsibly? Like how do, we, how do we teach research ethics and informed consent to folks that aren't experienced with it? They've never been exposed to an IRB, for example. Uh, they may not know these things about engaging with people. How do we teach research methods? How do we make sure that they're not just going out there and, and doing bad research? 
Um, and then they design something that doesn't work. So I'm really interested in how our community balances this shift with helping others do their own um, while still giving them the rigor and the boundaries that we need to do it right and do it respectfully. So that's, that's one thing I'm watching a lot. And I'd, I'd welcome any conversation around that. If any of your watchers want to find me, you can find me on LinkedIn. and I'd be happy to hear what you've solved for. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting conundrum, right? Because there are huge efficiency gains that come from being able to democratize research. But if the, if the, ex, the user experience of like research tools get way out ahead of the discipline of doing good research, then you, you run into problems. So it's almost like it needs to kind of move forward in lockstep. It's, it's an interesting challenge mm -hmm. that, that many, many companies have right now, for sure. It really is. And one of the things I'm also concerned about is brand risk. So if we've got researchers that are trained and they know what they're doing and they go out and they talk to clients, they're an ambassador of their company. So right. if, the, if, you know, if, if a client has a, a research session with somebody from Chipotle or Macy's or, or any big company that's got a user research team, that's going to be their impression of that company. Yeah. So if people just like pop up outside a coffee shop with a clipboard and a prototype and they start asking questions, like, like if they're representing their company, then they've got to be really smart about that and really careful. They can't screw it up because that could have long-term effects on that company's customers, um, especially in companies like ours like financial services that are federally regulated, mm -hmm. um, that, you know, a client attrition is a very big deal. Every client matters. Like if I'm just selling tacos or something, it, it might not matter as much. So I'm, I'm concerned, concerns too strong of a word, but I'm keeping an eye on how, how we present to our research participants and what that research, what that participant experience is like. Like, was it enjoyable? Was it trustworthy? Did we respect our clients? Because that's an extension of our brand at the company. If we just go run amok with a clipboard, that, that could be a problem. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Cool. All right, so this is a podcast, right, Jeff? Uh, and I know you keep up on uh, you know, what's going on in, in the industry and, and more broadly. So what, what podcasts or blogs or other media do you turn to for insight, inspiration, knowledge, enjoyment, any, any of the above? Love this question. Um, I read almost every blog post that Measuring You puts out. Mm -hmm. um, I, that's one of my go-to sources. It has been forever um, since I got out of the military and started working in um, the UX research space. So that's one of my favorites. I appreciate the, the way the science is there, the rigor is there, but it's applicable. It's approachable. It's accessible. So I like that one a lot. Um, and then it just depends on what I'm after. Like if I'm trying to explore a new space um, around like this idea of democratizing research, um, I'll, I'll just open up and I'll go out in the space and explore what I can. Um, See what grabs my attention. I'm looking at something else, um, some question about how to how to apply a certain method. Um, I might track somewhere differently. 
Sure. I don't get to listen to podcasts too much anymore because I don't have a commute. Yeah. My commute is <laughs> like 17 steps down the floor and, and I'm in my desk. So <laughs> not too many podcasts. This one I've checked out since I first learned about it. So congratulations on this. It seems to be doing really well and I've enjoyed this one. Yeah, so far so good. Cool. Well, if you've seen the podcast, then, then you know what question's coming next. I mean, it's rock and roll after all. So what I really want to know, I mean, we're talking UX research, really cool military stories, but when it comes down to the day, it comes down to it at the end of the day, what I want to know is you were stranded on a desert island, Jeff, and you had three records at your disposal of your choosing to keep you company for the rest of your days. What would those records be? This is a really hard question for me because I, I have an eclectic taste. I like a lot of music. The music I listen to at work is typically rock, metal, uh, Foo Fighters, Disturbed, stuff like that. That's, that's what I'll listen to all day at work. But if I was stranded on an island, I think I would have to choose artists that, that are really great with their lyrics. Like I would pick um, like Ice Cube, oh, Eminem, yes. Yes. and Casey Musgraves. I love the way, and that's like Casey Musgraves, Jeff, that's not rock and roll, that's country. But the way she weaves words together, the way Ice Cube weaves words together yeah. to tell stories, and it's, it's poetic. Ice Cube and Eminem, a lot more brutally poetic than Casey Musgraves, yeah. but still poetic, entertaining, magnificent word choice and storytelling, all weaved around a great beat. Um, and if I those would be my three. And if, if I'm going to throw in an honorable mention, uh, strangely enough, um, I'm going to add like Taylor Swift. And I'm going to say that with an asterisk because I didn't even know, I didn't even listen to her music until I heard I Prevail's cover of Blank Space on my rock station. I'm like, this song rocks. And my family's like, dad, this is Taylor Swift's song. Like, no, it's not. Like, this song's great. And like, yeah, dad. Um, so I started listening to a little bit of that, but wouldn't take her music with me on a desert island. All right. But those three, I'd go with Ice Cube, Eminem, and Casey Musgraves. And I, I don't know if I'd be able to choose one album over another, maybe a curated playlist of sorts, if I had that much time before I was stranded on a desert island. Okay, fair enough. I won't pin you down to an album, but that is really an interesting and interesting mix. Um, so, so really cool. Huge Ice Cube fan myself. So I love the choice. I, I could deal with Ice Cube on a desert island. So awesome stuff. Um, great, cool. Jeff, this has been so much fun. Uh, really awesome stories. And uh, I'd love to dig into them a little bit more. Of course, there's classified stuff you can't tell me, but <laughs> I really appreciate you. That made my interview pretty hard. <laughs> I'm on the phone with my hiring manager. It's like, Jeff, can you tell me how you applied a research method to this? Pro and I'm like, uh, how do I tell this story without disclosing sensitive information? So it was, it was, it was hard, but it worked. And here I am. Well, you did well. So awesome. Thanks so much, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Let's talk soon. And rock. <laughs>